What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, me and Ben are interviewing Rick Agnew from the Adolescence, Christian Death, and a ton of bands. It's a great interview, so stay tuned for that. But, Ben, you had a big article come out, uh, I believe it was last Thursday, is that correct? Yeah, please on pleasekillme.com, uh, the, the article is about the thing I've been blabbing about on this podcast for quite a while, the the uh, interim genre between punk and hardcore, kind of the bands that you don't know whether to put in the uh, punk bucket or the hardcore bucket because they fell between. Uh, so I call it 1.5. You can call it whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> but, it, but it ain't the Sex Pistols and it ain't negative approach, if you, if you feel me. And, and Rick Agnew is definitely sort of the patron saint of that sound. It's a very California-dominated um, genre and and the adolescence blue album being sort of the the apex of it all and, and di uh, for that matter as well so it yeah was it's really- kind of like that middle genre where you know if you're a 77 la punk going to the mask you'd be like oh that's hardcore but if you're like you said like in an a approach or whatever you would listen to it and be like that, that's punk you know so right. it's that weird middle thing and, and you're trying to like hash it out so the first drop went up on uh thursday at pleasekillme.com and that's right right yeah. and there's gonna be two more drops so that's part one there's gonna be part two there's gonna be part three and we'll do a discussion on it that we're gonna try to line up with the third one so uh we can hash it out with uh Bedge and also with daniel wiseman who's the other author and so check that out please support the podcast by subscribing to it wherever you listen to it also you can just go to the website 185 milesouthcom it's got all our links if you want to follow us on social media and so forth and also uh Smash that Patreon button. Help out the pod. You know what to do. But let's get on with the pod. One hundred eighty-five miles south. A hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we have Rick Agnew from The Adolescence, Christian Death, D.I., and basically every band in Southern California history. What's up, Rick? <laughs> Thank you. Not uh, Just, you know, sitting here going, talking to you guys and um, getting over uh, a couple of fractures in my arm and, uh, you know, just what everybody does every day. Come on. how how did you first get into punk rock music and was it your first love uh punk rock music i got into because uh well okay it's it's interesting because there's two stories of that one is (coughs) excuse me um one is uh uh, these two friends of mine we used to get stoned all the time in his little house his little room and stuff and um, they had like magazines, we'd be getting stoned. And then all of a sudden, um, this magazine had this article, I think it was High Times, in fact. And it, it was on the Sex Pistols. And one picture showed Johnny like singing on stage. And the other one showed that famous picture where where um, the Pistols are on stage and they're like grabbing people in the audience and punching them, you know. <laughs> and um, I'm all like, what the hell, do you know? And so I'm reading it and it's just something about, how they hate hippies and um, 
And and then I thought maybe they were they were a cowboy band or something, just because you know they did hippies. Um, and then also Ramones, I used to go to a, a, a record store called Music Box, and they always had the latest releases on this one, you know, wall. And uh, one of them was like the Ramones. I'm like, what the heck is this? Right away, I just knew this is different. And I'm like, Ramones. And then these guys are all in leather jackets and jeans. I'm like, you know, what is this all about? And I pick it up and I turn it around. I read the song titles and how long the songs are. Because at that point, I'm very much into progressive music, you know, with 20, 30 minute songs. And I'm all like, what? <laughs> these guys, I got to get this, you know, and I got it. And I just played it for all my rock and roll friends, you know, and progressive friends. And we were just hilarious. Just thought it was hilarious. But then we'd put it on all the time. And then pretty soon we're not laughing and we're just getting stoned. And after a while, we just became huge fans of that. And it was like, what else is there? And then we got, you know, we heard about the Sex Pistols, um, heard the music on um, um, on the radio, you know, and it was like, wow, you know, Rodney on the rock a little bit later. And uh just fell in love, man. I just go, this is the stuff, man. This is really, really good. You know, this this is rock and roll as it should be. Rick, how do you discover that there are shows that are relatively near to you? And then are you one of the first guys that tracked up from OC to Hollywood to check out that scene? Um, actually, that was Metal Class who started playing up in LA. They were uh, from Santa Ana. And uh, they they got to know people out here in L.A. and they they did a few shows. And um, then I, I hung out with those guys later on and they're going, yeah, you got to You got you got to play L.A. So um, at the time I was in a band called The Detours. And uh, I did us shows and every time when it was time to go play the shows, I couldn't reach any of them. It was like they were fucking, you know, I don't know. They were like, didn't want to get out of their own backyard. They were from La Habra. So, you know, I booked the show, you know, and then they wouldn't show up or they wouldn't ask. So, the, you know, I just threw together a band. Uh, one was the Duplicators, had Robert Omelet, who's kind of famous in Orange County. <laughs> he was quite a legend. And uh, things like that, you know, just threw together bands. So uh, after the third one, it was just like, fuck this, you know, I'm going to, um, you know, put together a band that can play, that wants to play out here. And um, ultimately, uh, the adolescents started playing out here. And I'm like, God, those guys, you know, they're playing out here. So and then they lost a, a member. So I took place on the drums. Peter Pan, he got a car accident. He was the original drummer. So I played drums for about three shows, four shows. And then John Donovan, who's now in the Rattlescence with me, uh, left the band. So I took over guitar. And then I brought Casey with me on, you know, for him to play the drums. Because, you know, he wanted to play play out too. And he was in the detours with me. So it was just like, you know, come with us. And that was that. <laughs> yeah, backing up. Backing up a little bit, can you describe what going to shows at the mask was like, what the environment of the mask was like, and what were some of the bands you saw there back when before you were playing, 
shows yourself just as a spectator what were the bands that left the biggest impression on you used to go down there like like every week and sometimes it stay there and just you know crash out in somebody's you know studio or whatever and stuff you know for a couple days sometimes i was almost living there but i couldn't get the balls to like you know move out to la or anything like that i was like orange county stuck um didn't have a car or anything like that so um the bands though um the one night that i'll never forget it was so incredible yeah, it had like every band on it was amazing. It was uh, the plugs opened, and then the deadbeats, and then the uh, the uh, uh, was it? Wait a minute, control Con- consumers. No controllers, I think it was, okay. and then uh, and then the weirdos and the screamers. Wow. And uh, I mean, that's the Screamers and the Weirdos to me are two of the best bands ever. Oh, it was the Bags, not not the Controllers. It was the Bags. And all five of those bands, I was just like, oh, my God, you know, this, this is amazing. You know, they were just so good. So uh, that was one of the ones I remember the most. Uh, went there for New Year's Eve, 79. Um, and uh, on that night, uh, Black Randy uh, debuted. <laughs> Black Randy and the Metro Squad. Yeah, they yeah. yeah, they debuted. And then um, Darby Crash and, um, and um, uh, what was it? Lance Loud from the Moms, Tomato from the Screamers, and John Denny from the Weirdos. The four of them were bringing like a backing vocalist and stuff. And um, Black Randy comes out, you know, <laughs> he does this thing. We're just going like, what is this? This is amazing. Who is this guy? <laughs> and um, so many cool bands. Like, um, so, uh saw the Chesterfields there. They were kind of a 60s retro band. Um, then Naughty Women played there. That was uh, one of the first punk bands I was in, too. And I got us an opening show there. And uh, uh, Bill is a guy that uh, he he runs uh, Black Hole Records. He's had that forever, you know, in Fullerton there. Uh-huh. So it was him and uh, Beatrice, his friend. And they both just like sang, I guess you want to call it sing. And they were, they were screaming and rolling around. They had barbed wire on. <laughs> and they got the hell out of themselves rolling around and stuff. And then uh, two of my friends from high school would drummed and guitar and i play guitar and we, we were like we were just a, a mess 10 minutes you know and we were like handing out sodas to people and stuff and confetti and just all kinds of stuff like that you know just put it on a show and people hated us they're just like you know you guys suck go back to orange county you guys you know this isn't punk rock you guys are a joke you know and we're just going jealousy <laughs> was, was Izzy Stradlin ever in that band someone told me Izzy Stradlin was in Naughty Women at some point was it yes that, he yes, was he was our drummer for a while yeah oh my god yeah yes he was and um he was also in Voodoo Church you know that 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 early uh goth band and um and then anyway uh Naughty Women played and uh uh then a band called Wax with two X's played. And that was Kira Rosler on 
on a bass. This guy named Dog Boy was a singer. And the drummer was Paul Rosler. Kira's, you know, brother, the one that was in Screamers and all that. Yeah. And um, he was, a, he drummed that night. He had like a broken arm too. And he, but he was just, you know, just doing drumming and stuff. And yeah, it was pretty interesting. There are, uh, handful, there are a handful of bands that are in that 77 to 78 era that seem to kind of point to the direction that maybe the adolescence and your generation of bands kind of took um took the 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 reins or the lead from maybe i'm overstating their importance but it seems like and and these bands were not from hollywood but the consumers from arizona f word oh, one of the best bands ever ever i saw their first show at the mask we were just like you know jaw dropped just like oh my god these guys are good you know they were so good but and then a lot uh, you know paul uh, paul uh color was a guitar player i'm just going like where does what planet do you come from dude and um a lot of those songs ended up being 45 grave songs right um but it's just weird that that they record this thing in in 77 that doesn't come out until 95 a whole album actually and it sounds like 1980 suburban hardcore like it doesn't sound like it's from 77 it's like they got into a time machine and went back in time and like made this album it's insane but <laughs> there's like a few bands like that like f word from covina is another one did, did they, you yeah they were great i saw them one of the first times they played is uh at the, at the mask and we just thought they were great because you know um rick hill rick is like look he doesn't wear shoes <laughs> <He's Right. laughs> That was funny. And he was a really nice guy, too. You know, he's very, it's very cool. Um, him and uh, and Jeanette from uh, Concrete, Concrete Blonde and uh, myself and my brother, Frank, we were going to start a band with Rick. And but then right when we were going to get get it going, you know, that's when he got the cancer. Oh, you OK. So you're talking about late 90s, early 2000 uh, era. With um, this was yeah i guess it was um i'm not totally sure i can't remember yeah it was about 89 90 yeah okay um and then the other a couple of bands i wanted to ask you about is um the germs and black flag um did, did they have an impact on on the music that you made at all i mean all these bands did okay. and then it's you know but um the germs were kind of like like the quote-unquote joke band because they like really, really were horrible and couldn't play when they first started playing. And you know, I mean, listen to that single Sex Boy, you know, the flip side of forming that single. Yep. And it was just like, you know, all over the place. What really improved them a lot was when they got uh Don Bowles on drums. Because he is just a mon he's still a monster on drums. I love that guy, man. He's amazing. And um yeah, but they were they were, you know, they were they were a, they were fun to watch. I mean, they were just full on just true punk rock, you know. And uh right. Um very yeah, Pat's Mir, I mean, he's amazing. You know, to go from the germs to like Nirvana to the Food Fighters, it's like whoa. <laughs> Talk about, you know, going from the bottom to the very 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 top, you know. Yeah, yeah. but also a backslide in the quality of bands. 
Uh, what now? No, I would say it's a backslide in the quality of bands, though, with uh, Foo Fighters being the worst, Nirvana being a little better, and the Germans being the best. <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, I like every band, and I like every, you know, music style, genre, whatever you want to call it. I always find good and stuff. I'm not a, that's why I would never make a good critic, you know? I, never, I would never be a good reviewer or anything, because I always just have great things to say about, you know, I always see the positive um but yeah um just pat was amazing anyway so uh well rick we have we have to punish everyone with this question that was around to see it who was the best black flag singer first of all did you see all four singers you did yes i did yes i did i saw all four singers and you know what Uh, to you know I'm never really good at just answering, like you said, you know, about the, the three bands Pat was in, you know, it's like they all had good stuff. They all had good stuff, you know, and they, they, um, every one of them had their flaws, but they, they all had good things. And I always concentrate on the good things. Uh, the, the black flag, my, my favorite black flag era was when they had Des singing. Okay. Wow. Yeah, just because, well, listen to like, you know, the stuff they did with Dad, with Dez on vocals, you know, like that single, that one three song single, you know, and uh, and it's just to me, it was just like, whoa, it's sonic, you know, especially when we played with them up in Frisco with Adolescence and and um, they played and it was just like when they did that song, you know, that when that goes, I've heard it before, I think it's called. Yep. And it was just like they built it slowly up, you know, and they were so loud. And, and well, it didn't help that we were on LSD too. <laughs> and uh, we're on the side of the stage and it was just, I felt like a fucking, you know, um, jet was taken off. You know, right. from the stage or something. It was so yeah. powerful. It kept going and going and going. And then all of a sudden, just it just exploded in the ah, I heard it before. And everybody just, it was like the place almost exploded, you know? And that, that's what I loved about Black Flag. So cool. Um, yeah. And with Keith, you know, I mean, it, that's, that's obvious, you know, he was, you know, the first singer and he was really, really good, you know? And, he was fun. He was a little bit more humorous and stuff. And then Ch- uh, Chavo or, you know, whatever you want to call him. Um, he was really good, too. You know, he he filled in very well and stuff, and, as you could see in um, in um, Decline movie. You know, he was good. And uh, then you had, uh, yeah, then you had Des and then you had Henry. And uh, Henry, you know, Henry was great. I mean, he was like, it was like, fuck, what's up with this dude? You know, <laughs> I liked his band, uh, SOA. I liked him in that band best, you know, State of Alert. It was yeah. a band. He was yeah. In, yeah, out there. Um, but I like, I've basically liked everything Henry's done. And I, it's been a while since I talked to him, but we, you know, we would chat a lot together and stuff and he's the coolest nicest kindest almost quiet reserved kind of dude he's it's like Jekyll and Hyde him on stage and then off stage wow yeah and Rick, um, can, oh, go, huh? ahead. go no, ahead no, sorry go ahead. No, no, yeah, I'm can, done. can you talk a little bit about how punk spread throughout OC 
and how that scene was different than the Hollywood scene? Um, basically, when before any punk, well, there was Naughty Women uh, was the very first one, and we just we would just uh, I'd play drums, and then um, the two guys, the two singer guys, they had they had bought new guitars, like really expensive ones and amps, and they didn't know how to play. <laughs> They just banged the guitars and they'd set up all these toy dolls, you know, stuffed dolls in the garage. And then I played like a, um, a snare and a floor tom and smash uh, bottles inside of a trash can. And um, <laughs> that's, that's what we were. But then it got to where, where um, you know, you had uh, that band, The Mechanics. I don't know if you ever heard of them, The Mechanics. Yeah. Yeah, the the early mechanics. It was, uh, you know, but I tell people later on, and, and they go, "Oh, you mean Mike and the mechanics that that all shoot from Genesis?" No, 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 no. <laughs> this band is like five guys. Their drummer Sandy is still playing. He plays in um, Agent Orange now. Uh, he played in Adolescence for a while too, and everything and stuff. Monster drummer, still one of my favorite drummers ever. Scott, the singer, used to just like go wild on stage and stuff. And then he had to go to prison for killing somebody. But then it was like uh, it was self. Basically, he had to do it. It was self-defense. And without getting into the whole thing, when he got out um, seven years later, I've always wanted to be in a band with him. So I called him up. I go, dude, I know it's a little early in the game, but uh, you want to start a band? And he's all, sure. And I go, what should we call it? And he's all poop. I go, why? And he goes, why not? I go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I remember poop. Yep. Um, yeah. That's more like in the 2000s though. But going back to like the late 70s, what, do, what are your memories of going to shows at the Fleetwood and the Cuckoo's Nest? And, 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 what, and what was it like? Because people talk about the violence in OC a lot and, and how kids, yeah. punk kids were violent. And I just want to know, like, just from an insider's perspective, what was your take on it and, like, why it was so different than, like, that older a lot of, scene? Yeah, a lot of times it was, you know, it wasn't us that was being um, violent. It was, like, people, you know, fucking punks, you know, these, like, what we called lodies, you know, like Hessians, you know. Uh, uh, excuse me you know the the your your rock and roller fan kind of guys and they couldn't stand that we were having a good time i guess and they would wait outside the fleetwood uh they they would like have like about 50 people out there and then when we they let the when the when the show was over and everything and stuff they'd start chasing us and everything and trying to beat the shit out of us and and um they also this one girl they cut they they cut her from her lip to you know her ear and stuff and just i mean it was really radical you know but then we and so I, right away after a few things like that it was like no we're not going to take this shit you know so we come out and they try you know do it again and we would we were ready you know <laughs> we, back then you get into uh shows with you know guns knives if you you know there wasn't any of this checking you know, searching stuff. So we'd bring those, and then you know, as soon as um, those guys would come along, we'd be putting p- pointing pistols at them and having knives out and just start chasing them, you know, and throwing sh- 
bottles and rocks and whatever it took. You know, they were just like, oh, shit, you know. <laughs> this went on and on and after a while. But um, and then once we kind of got a real little respect and got those those assholes out off, off of us, then it became the cops. <laughs> like those famous pictures you see, you know, where the cops are all marching down or they'd come to a show and they would just like come in and just start bashing people and bashing people. They break up a show and then they chase everybody. And, um, and um, I mean, kids were like crying because these, these cops are chasing them and swinging at them. And they were run, crying, running to their cars, trying to get in their car, trying to take off. And the, the cops would just be smashing their windows in, pulling them out, you know, and just beating them and stuff. You know, so uh, I never had the fortune to do that because I was smart. I would like either hide under a car or we we made it to our car and we just lay down and wait for the fracas to stop, you know. <laughs> Why do you think so, the police were so aggressive towards punks? I, To be honest with you, I think that they uh, par- partially feared us. They... They read uh, like it was kind of the fuck the press, you know. The newspapers made us out to be like these criminals, you know, just horrible criminals. And mind you, like especially in HB in the earlier days, I mean, yeah, you know, we weren't exactly you know uh, good boys and girls or anything like that. But nothing to merit that kind of like reaction. It was like, come on. So it was just you know it was just a hard hot time, you know. It's just like, I guess we were like a friend of mine that was in a band called Berlin, Archie. He had said, he goes, you know what it is? Punks are like the hippies of the 70s, of the, yeah, the 70s and 80s. He goes, it's the same thing. You know, it's a rebellion and stuff. He goes, but whereas the hippies were like all about peace and love and putting flowers in the, into the uh, uh, the uh, military police's guns, uh, uh you know, we we turned around and said, no, 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 we got to be violent. We got to be aggressive and everything and stuff, because the last time the peace thing just did not work. You know, so it was like kind of a turnaround. Right. And then tell me about the there's this story I heard you to- tell uh, another time about going to see this excellent band everyone should listen to called the clan no not the ku klux klan the name of the band is just the clan oh the party <laughs> yeah the party where the clan played describe that because that's like the fourth element of violence because you have you have violence at home you have the loadies attacking punks you have the police attacking punks and then you have the story you're about to tell yeah we um heard the clan where this was in a it was either Long Beach, Sunset Beach. I think it was probably Huntington Beach somewhere. But we heard that, that they were playing a party. So we go, yeah, let's go, let's go. And we pull up and and um, there's these cops all over the place. And we look and we see, see a friend of ours. We go, What's going on? You party over? <laughs> and they go, dude, man, just everybody just all of a sudden went crazy you know, the music, they were all slam dancing in the house and everything and stuff. And next thing you know, they destroyed the entire house. And I mean, I think that's just bullshit. You know, even back then, I was like, that's sad. You know, that's just going to give us a bad name. And those people did not deserve that, you know, and it was, it was destroyed. I mean, it was, 
walls were knocked out, all the windows were knocked out, you know, it was flooding, um, the furniture and everything was all on the lawn, all over the place. And um, I guess a couple of people that lived there or the girl that lived there and her boyfriend, they were just like totally crying and holding each other and stuff. And um, yeah, it was, it was horrible. Why do you think Orange County was so much wilder than the, that 77 um, L.A. Hollywood scene? Because in L.A., I, I feel it's because in L.A., you know, it's another musical trend and it's all about the music and it's all about the look. And um, it's all about, you know, some rebellion and all that kind of stuff. Whereas Orange County, you know, Orange County has been always known to have kind of a violent streak because of, you know, surfers and surf Nazis and. You know that kind of thing. It's it's always been you know more uh, violent oriented as far as that kind of thing. But I mean, look at that surfing, you get skate. You know, it was it just was right. So, uh, yeah. So. Uh, uh, hmm? So, um, tell me about this. Is the question that my friend Daniel. Wanted, wanted to know what what was the an average day in the life of Rick Agnew in 79 or 80? Ooh. Um, let's see. I don't know. Uh, get up. Um, go get some beer. <laughs> go get some weed, you know, and just get together with bandmates or whoever. And... Uh, and call around and just find out when we're, you know, where the shows were going to be that night. And, and, you know, just, that's about it. Just parties, shows. Um, but I was going to college at the same time. <laughs> what college? Huh? What college? Uh, Fullerton college. Okay. Not the, not the university, just uh, the, the junior college as they call it, I guess. Right. The, the hornets we were hornets see there you go hornets <laughs> come on it's a, a violent animal yeah well orange county has just got a streak to, to it i don't know man maybe it's that vitamin c i don't know no, no. <laughs> now tell me about the the de- the detours um so you were in that band with casey and some other guys but a lot of the songs you wrote ended up becoming the like some of the more famous songs by adolescents di the rick agnew's first solo album like can you go through like some of the songs that that were originally detour songs that are more well known as other songs other band songs oh that other bands played later yeah exactly that's (laughs) or maybe the songs that the bands were known for and everything but yeah detours see that's the thing when the detours didn't want to play in la i was just like oh man we could we could we could kill the la man we could totally be it's just amazing uh you know band and and everything but it wasn't and so the i mean check it out we our originals that we had was a song uh were songs called p and hated and um uh hate yeah p hated and uh 19 and nowhere and something else that was hated okay uh uh beep beep that was one 
so those four were original. They still haven't been, uh, well, they were recorded, but they've never been released. I think we're going to use it for the uh, the new Rattlescence. But that's now. Rattlescence is what's now. Let's go back to detours. Uh, let's see. Everything from, uh, we were working on, uh, but never played live, uh, Tis of the Black Hole, uh, OC Life, uh, Falling Out, um, let's see, Guns, Euthanasia, um, let's see what else. Richard hung himself? Um, that was, uh, no, we did, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't Detours. Okay. That was a song that we uh, Casey and I and stuff we put together for uh, for actually for the adolescence, you know. But then yeah. when that broke up, and we, then we used it for DI because after that, Casey and I had DI with uh, the uh, bass player F. Holla J. Magic, Fred Dragon, and the guitar player Steve Roberts, who went on to take my place in the adolescence. But then he had to serve some time too, and um, let's see. So yeah, so that was uh, we what Richard hung himself back then. And what know. about No Way? Was that okay? Huh? Was No Way a detour song? Yeah, Creatures. Creatures was No Way was. Uh, uh, what was the one? The I went to see. There was uh, keep doing it. Sounds like that. I'll let you know. Definitely. <laughs> I, my head is just so fucking, you know what I mean? There's so much TMI, TMI, TMI. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it, that whole North Orange County, Fullerton, Placentia scene, it's it's a lot of uh, musical chairs going on. Everyone's playing in each other's bands and leaving and the lineups aren't very stable. And um, like, I had no idea until like last month that you and Casey were in the original uh, lineup of Social Distortion. Yes. So who yes. was in that, and what did that sound like? It was me on bass, uh, Casey on drums, Mike Ness on guitar, and then a guy named Tommy Corvin on vocals. He was amazing. I mean, if that band would have stayed like that, see, that's what's funny, is the original lineups of these bands, that band would have just slaughtered, because Tommy was an amazing singer. He sounded so good. And we did covers of things like... <clears throat> We covered Shattered by um, Rolling Stones and a um, couple other covers. I forgot which ones now, but um, a lot of the stuff that was on Mommy's Little Monster later, we did those songs, but they were had they were called something different and they had different lyrics. Mm-hmm. So, um, Did you write any songs uh, that ended up getting recorded by Social Distortion? No. Okay. No. That's Mike Ness. Mike Ness wrote all those songs, or well, not Mike. I mean, you got Mike. You had, uh, you know, Dennis later on and stuff. And um, some of the songs, you know, yeah, we wrote, but then I guess you know, uh, Mike would change the lyrics, and so it was he had the riff and the, the words. You know, smart. Uh, right. But uh, yeah, we, it was a great. It, I, I thought that band was really gonna go somewhere and they did but without us <laughs> <laughs> rick you talked a little bit about uh the kids in the black hole what do you remember about writing that song and what the process was like did you do it on guitar 
And then also you wrote it with the detours. Are there any tapes of the detours playing that song? I don't know. And I'm not too familiar, but we had a lot of tapes, but then like they got lost. Uh, like singer Gordon somehow lost them. But um, later on we were, we were doing the detour reunions, you know, and, and we had a few songs that we were going to do uh, that we wrote, but um we only did, we only recorded and did two of them. One was called Cop Song and one was called uh, uh, Killing Machine. Those are really, really, really good songs, but they ended up on compilations uh, like about, uh, what, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Um, and the rest of the songs got kind of transformed, I mean, transposed and transformed into uh, songs for this band that my brother Alfie and Sean Elliott, they were both, you know, doing the detour reunions with us. You know, it was like those two guys and me on guitars. Uh, then the original, um, the, the bass player, Jeff Bean, singer Gordon from the original detours. And then we've had a couple of different people play drums, like Stevie Dirt from Heavy Dirt, and uh, and John, who was in um, DI, John Knight. So, but going, going back to the song "Kids of the Black Hole," tell us, I mean, what was that song about? That describes a, a real vivid portrait of a specific time and place. Yeah, it was. Um, it was all about the black hole, which was the. Uh, apartment that was in it was a one-bedroom apartment it was right across from uh, ladera vista junior high school on acacia and between chapman and commonwealth uh, in fullerton there mm-hmm. and that's what that's where it all went down for like about a good six months i mean there'd be people there every night every day just partying and like what the song said you know and um and uh you know just having just outrageous parties and doing acid drinking um uh you know sex 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 and stuff and uh yeah it was pretty cool that's where mike ness cut his finger really bad (laughs) and that's why he can't play with the one finger you know so he does kind of like that keith richards courting and stuff because he took this knife he was all drunk pissed off and he, he took this butcher knife and he went to stab it through the through the wall but he hit a uh he hit a, a beam yeah stud and when he did oh god i saw it and it just oh every time i think about it, it hurts and he just boom like that and when he did it it stuck and then his hand just kept going and sliced all the way through you know and stuff he had to have his finger you know done and he had to have this thing put through his finger to, to keep it on there but um yeah it, it, it permanently damaged him but not not enough to where he can have his own style. <laughs> well, what's 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 the finger on his on his left hand? Which one is it? Uh, the uh, index. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I've never yes. done that before. Wow. Yeah. So so when was this? When was the black hole happening? Do you remember the year? Yeah. So it's from the beginning till like probably towards the end of 1979 okay and uh bands like uh 
got, you know, together and formed or whatever, you know what I mean? The people met each other there. The detours would go and hang there a lot. Agent Orange would go there and hang, you know, a lot. Uh, the, the adolescent guys, um, and then some other people like, you know, just different people like that yeah, and, yeah. and new punks and punks that were already around and, and even glam, glam rockers. I mean, it was, it was maddening. It was, it was, it was, it was great. It was a great time. It's like, well, you read the lyrics and it's all, it's all true. It's all good. You know, that's basically what happened. And um, by the time, yeah, by the time it was uh, almost done and almost over, I mean, people were going over there and, and just yanking the cabinets off the walls and smashing them. The, our aquarium, fish aquarium there had tons of like trash and the fish were dead and everything. And when we first got there, we would like write stuff on the walls, you know, just like with a felt pen or whatever. Then we started spray painting things on the walls and we spray painted things on the ceiling, on the carpet. <laughs> Just destroyed that place. I mean, you could never get away with that now anywhere. You know, it's, it was like, like, uh, an, it's like an Orange County tradition, destroying houses, right? <laughs> I guess it was back then. Yeah, I guess that's what they thought was punk, you know. But we just, I guess it, that, that got destroyed because... Uh, um. Yeah, they were, you know, because they were going to move out. So decided to just trash it all. Um, yeah. So so tell us about when the adolescents start to get going, you end up on that first Rodney on the Rock comp on, on um, Posh Boy Records, and that's owned by Robbie Fields. How did, how did that come about? How did you get on that comp, and what was working with Robbie Fields like? What kind of a guy was that? Um, well, uh, the reason, the way, I, I don't know, a lot of people did not like him. A lot of people thought he was a scam, a scum, you know, and, and just like, you know, he got, he got kind of beat up a couple times by punks and everything. And I thought that was just horrible. You know, it's like, dudes, come on, you know, and they'd blame him like, you know, well, we recorded for him and he didn't pay us anything and stuff. And it's like, did you read the contracts? No. You know, I mean, just like, dude, you know, there's this thing called, um, uh, you know, when you get the money up front, uh, recoup, you know, the company's got to recoup their their money. And um, that's got to come first. Then you get your percentage of the record and stuff. And Posh has always, I still call him Posh. I mean, to this day, we still, you know, are connected. And he helps me a lot with um, financial things because he's really good in the, uh, you know, the law section and then the rules section of publishing and release and things. And he's never treated me bad. Never. Uh, and then same with Lisa Fancher from Frontier. You know what I mean? They, these people are great. They're, they're, you can trust them. And, you know, if you, as long as you know how the business runs, because some people, oh, no, no, they're rip-off, man. I did them for money and then nah, nah, nah. It's like, no, you just don't know how the business works. You know? But going back to Robbie Fields, you you did the song Amoeba on that first Rodney comp. Is Was mm-hmm. Robbie Fields the producer? Did he have a producer's role? Was he in the studio when you were recording that? I don't remember. I think he was, though. I'm pretty sure he was. And... uh you know, he, yeah, he was he was there and stuff. I mean, we just go in, 
bang it out. I mean, we for adolescents, we were we were good at what we did, you know, and we could just, you know, one take, boom, 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 you know. And that was right. good enough. It was like, yeah. yeah, so. So that brings us to Frontier and Lisa. How did you end up on Frontier? Um, and then also, uh, if you can remember anything about recording the Blue Album. Yeah, what, uh, the, re- the way we ended up on uh, Frontier was, uh, I tend to, re- to remember that uh, Robbie had a band and she had a band on their labels and they like kind of like traded, you know, who's going to put out the records, you know, who, each other's records. And so we did, you know, and uh, that's how that happened, basically. And what was the other questions? Um, about recording the Blue Album. Like, do you remember actually being in the studio recording it? And and um, I know Tom Wilson was the engineer and Mike Patton from Middle Class was the producer. If you could explain like the different, like what those two guys' roles were in recording that that record uh well um mike Patton was producer because that's what tony adolescent wanted but i mm-hmm. wanted mike Patton to produce it and i want him to get 10 percent and da, 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 da. otherwise i'm not going to do it you know tony just had a way about you know had to have his way and everything and stuff he kind of reminded me of like you know a sassy kurt cobain type of person you know just had to have his way and, uh, you know, but whatever, you know, that's all, that's all fucking water under the bridge. And we, you know, we obviously allowed it, but Mike did help a lot. He was, you know, he, he, he cared and wanted to make sure it sounded good. Um, but I remember when we went there the first day and we got in there and um, my brother Frank, you know, was in there and stuff. And my, um, and then, um, Tony came in and Tony got the, uh, the fire extinguisher. It's one of those kind with the, you know, the chemicals, you know, smoke or whatever. Yeah. Those chemical ones. Right. And all of a sudden he just goes, Frank, and Frank turns around and he just blasted him right in the face with it. Wow. <laughs> Jesus. You know? And uh, I always make a joke about it. I go, that's why Frank's never been the same. you know you never know i mean you know i mean i love my brothers they're they're quite characters we all are weird characters which real quick um uh by the end of the year i think it is um there's going to be a a motion picture out called agnew uh the story of a southern california family and it's really going to be good. It's kind of a documentary slash movie slash, you know, you'll see it's, it's pretty rad, but we're still working on songs for the, you know, the uh, background and stuff. Okay. Back to the uh, studio. <laughs> um, yeah. That happened. And then, you know, then, uh, we found out that um, Casey found out that um, the, uh, they had a, vend- a vending machine in there. And uh, it had like grape, Coca-Cola, this, that, and then one that didn't have nothing. And so Casey's all like, hey, I'm, I'm going to drink nothing. And he puts uh, 50 cents in anyway, press, press the button, and it was beer. Oh. 
Wow. And we're like, bonus, you know? Yeah. So we, we sat there by the time we were done with the first, that first night where it was like the beers were empty. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, do you play the solos on that? Do you play the solos on the blue album? Uh, my brother and I, it depends on what song and what solo, you know? So you can kind of tell my brother plays that more, you know, heavy metal, like pretty technical kind of stuff. He, you know, and I was more just like, you know, let cut loose, bang it, you know, and, and octaves, you know, the octave thing. Right. Yeah. So, so, so Frank is the one that goes. And then, and then you're the one that goes. Come on, man. That sounds the same. That does not describe it at all. Give me, give me a song and tell me what's what what one, and I'll tell you. Well, what. I'm talking about Amoeba. In Amoeba, there's that solo that goes. Oh. oh, Amoeba. He he does the first one that you hear. I do the last one. Okay. Uh, and like, uh, no way. He does the very first one. I do the second one. You know, uh, let's see. Any other ones? Amoeba. You know, I got the Amoeba already. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, the, second, the second solo in Amoeba is the greatest solo in the history of punk rock. No? Thank you. <laughs> I mean, so, so you can just rest your hat on that one and, uh, and feel good about it. I clearly yeah. remember. I clearly remember you playing that solo at the Palladium in 1992 and you put your hand over the pick, the over the the, um, the neck, neck of the guitar, you know, overhand style yeah. <laughs> when you're bending the notes. I love doing that. I, you know, I, I, I got that idea to do that from uh, another one of my total guitar heroes. I, I just he was he is so he was is so great uh, is uh, uh, Sicky from uh, from the Mentors. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Sicky is or Eric, I guess is his name. And um yeah, he I, I would go and watch the mentors and just I mean we loved the mentors. We'd sit there and watch uh Sicky play and just go like, oh my god, this guy's all over the place. And to do the tap, you know, he'd do it o- o- over the neck, tap the notes and stuff, and then he'd do it like, you know, with both hands, like he's playing a piano, but but on the guitar. I'm like Jeez, this guy's amazing. And later, you know, when I got to meet him and everything and stuff, and he's all like, yeah, Rick, I was, you know, one time he called me and asked if I could like show him some stuff on guitar. <laughs> I start laughing and he goes, oh, no, no, I'm serious. And I go, I know that's why I'm laughing because, dude, I mean, <laughs> worship, 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 you know, <laughs> this, this is so weird, you know. Yeah. It's like when, when I joined the Flesh Eaters for a, for a bit there, and uh, we had uh, Dan Eva O were the guitar players, um, and then uh, Crystal from the Speed no not Crystal the other girl that was playing bass for Speed Queens, she was the bass player but they didn't want her for whatever reason so they got a uh, uh, Cliff Roman from the Weirdos, yep, and because uh, uh, Cliff uh, Martinez was the drummer. Um, and he, uh, and so they go, yeah, Cliff's going to be the bass player now. So go in this little room on the side over here and show them the songs. Okay. And I go, oh, okay. And so I'm sitting there facing him and I'm like, you know, in the chair and he's like, looking at me like, like he's ready, you know, like, okay, what do I do? And I just go, 
and I just hold my head and I just go, no, no. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. Did uh, And I go, no, no, you don't realize, you know, the weirdos are my gods. You guys are my gods to me, man. And you especially were just amazing. And this is just really surreal <laughs> that I'm, I'm showing you songs and it's just trippy. So that was a... That's that's the magic of punk is like if a band came along two or three years earlier, they're like the they're you know they're like gods to you, even though in the grand scheme of things, it's what's two or three years, right? But that that's a huge deal. Like that's uh, those are the people you look up to because they came first. Even, oh even, yeah, I mean, without the weirdos, there'd be no. I mean, weirdos, mechanics, and. Uh, you know, and the damned, those three band, those three bands right there. I mean, they're they're just the best. You know, be all. I mean, they're gods. To me, they always will be. And you know, that it's because of them how I learned my chops. You know, so yeah. And, and cool. is that where the octaves come from? Where the octaves come from? The octaves came from uh, the mechanics. Okay. Yeah, that that came from the mechanics and. uh he got it from, uh, and I got uh, both them, him and myself got it from uh, Cheap Trick, early Cheap Trick. Yep. Great, another great band that you, oh my God. And then uh, Mitch Ryder, he would do some of those octave kind of things, you know? Yeah, I think Cheap Trick gets it from Gary Glitter. I mean, I hear that in their, in their music. Well, and Gary Glitter too, yeah, like Rock and Roll Part 2. Right, right. Oh yeah, and DI covers that song. Wow, it all comes full circle. Yes, it does. <laughs> Rick, there's a rumor uh the back cover photos on the blue album that Glennie Freeman took, uh, that each of you guys are on a different drug. Is that true or not? Um, no, but we were all Hari Krishnas. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, those pictures were taken uh, in the alley. Behind the uh, uh, what was the place called then? It's uh, it's over there by uh, it's on Hollywood Boulevard. It's now like a big. There's a big food for less there and stuff like that. Uh, uh, Stardust Ballroom. Stard, thank you, Stardust Ballroom, and it was uh, that uh, Black Flag put on a show there, and we played that that show as them and and Fear and ourselves and a bunch of bands that. It was called a Bitchin' Tan Bitchin' Band uh, contest. And it was so funny because all these, like, Hessians showed up, you know, <laughs> thinking that that's what it really, really, really was. But it was just to get them to go there and to pay money, you know. <laughs> and that's all it was, you know. So we were out in that, that alley. And, uh, and um, well, let's see. Uh, that uh, Steve... Steve tried, uh, what was it? I know that myself and Casey and uh, Tony were on acid. I remember being so fried out because, like, when they when Glenn flashed that camera, it was just like boom, 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 really trippy. But uh, my brother Frank, uh, uh, he looks stoned. <laughs> No, he was he wasn't stoned. He he never did he never drank or did drugs back then and stuff. But I think I do believe that he might have tried a little bit of the stuff that uh, 
that a couple of the guy the other guys were on uh uh being uh heroin so but you know they, they tried it just like you know yeah i know horrible stuff but they were never they never like got became junkies they never became anything you know the most they, they would do is drink you know my brother still drinks frank he still he still drinks and that's it and steve you know he would drink or whatever and stuff and then he quit then he drink drink then he quit god bless his soul and then you got casey who is like you know him and i are just like uh um what do you call it uh lifers when it comes to weed love the weed mm-hmm and that's all I do. And that's all I've been doing for over 10 years now because of my liver. I have a very bad liver. So was there a point, was there a point that you remember where heroin infiltrated the punk scene or was it kind of always around? Um, yeah, yeah. It, I, I kind of remember it was, it was kind of always around, but not as uh, blatant. And then it got bigger a little bit later and stuff. I mean, you know, it. I always hated that shit. I, I can't stand heroin. I just watch it ruin people. They, they they become suddenly their name is junkie. You know, they have no personality. They have no whatever. It just kills them. You know what I mean? And it's so uh, they're just junkie. And yeah, it's not. I, you know, I feel so horrible when people. Get become a slave to any kind of drug or alcohol. Um, uh, uh, do, you, do you remember? This is like totally switching gears, but still on, <laughs> on that. <laughs> on the adolescence um, topic, do you remember what you considered yourselves um, back then in '81? Like the style of music you played was blank. What what did you consider yourselves? Um, well, I've always considered anything and everything I've done, no matter what the genre was, I could, I just call it rock and roll. Okay. Um, but with, uh, like, well, with adolescents, we were punk rock, but okay. we, but we, we, you know, we made, we had a little bit of, uh, you know, with the leads and stuff like that. So, cause we all liked, you know, we're influenced by, um, the 70s bands, you know, classic rock or anything like that, too. You can hear that in our riffs, too, sometimes. And progressive rock, you know, just all that stuff, you know. So, right. yeah, it was, it was just adolescence, you know. And do you, re- do you remember when you first heard the word hardcore to describe, uh, you know, style of music? And what band that or what bands that applied to? Uh, it was just bounced around punk, hardcore, you know, it was new wave. I mean, there was always like, it depends, you know, it didn't really refine itself till much, much later. What was what, you know, but right. hardcore kind of described, you know, to me, punk was more, you know, melodic. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was kind of more pop, but with, with an abrasive edge and, and, you know, and, and anger and, and, a dr- you know, in your face. Hardcore was just like, you know, music to fucking murder your friend by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think of adolescence as kind of falling between those two things. Like um, 
you're a, you're you're more aggressive than a band like the Sex Pistols, but you know it's not it still has the the melody and and the and the tunefulness of of punk that hardcore tends to not have anymore. And and so I'm just I have this theory about retroactively labeling all the bands that kind of fall between punk and hardcore. Um, well, I call it 1.5. It doesn't really matter what it's called, but there, you know, there are these bands like, like Rhino 39, the crowd, teen idols, fear, the germs, very early black flag. And like, it's not quite hardcore, but it's definitely harder than punk. Like, do you think that's a fair assessment that, that, that there's this entire class of bands that fall between the two? Does it work for you? <laughs> Does it work for me? Yeah. It works for me. Yeah. Okay. I came up okay. with the idea, but, but does it, do you think that's fair to say that, 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 you know, to group bands like that in, in together or, or, or if, that, or if that's missing some sort of overall point? <laughs> Is it? Is it I fair? I don't and, know. <laughs> okay. Is it fair? And you know what? Who cares? It's just like, that's your take on it. And, you know, if anybody doesn't like that, they can, you know, they can, you know, do whatever. <laughs> right. I can't think of an insult. Yeah. I always really positive. But, um, yeah. Uh, no, I think it's it's whatever. To me, it's all rock and roll. Seriously. It's either rock and roll, jazz, classical, um, or a country western. To me, that's the only music set genres that are and everything there's lots of subgenres but one of them always falls in under one of those four flags right that's right me, and that's me that's my take on it of course you know? yeah yeah but do you remember like you know a couple years after the blue album you have bands like circle one and minor threat and and well, minor threats probably around the same time but just like really fast really hard like you can tell the music's moving in that direction like did you get a sense that the that it was going that way like the music was just continually getting faster and harder with each subsequent year every band you seem like would you know the more they play the faster their music got you know the songs got it was almost like because of the energy and the drive and the in your face you know that it's you naturally you're 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 uh um the the temple would go up you know more and more and more it's just like i remember when i first heard the damned uh, that's another beautiful band by the way damn 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 is a major influence on us and stuff and to me i think they were they weren't like the pistols or anything they were they were kind of hardcore you know if you want to call it hardcore and uh you know so uh Oh, darn it. Where was I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally can hear that. I totally think that the dam might have played a bigger role in influencing L.A. bands, maybe because they actually played in L.A. and Sex Pistols didn't. And then you got the middle class. I mean, when those by the time those guys are playing in L.A. in L.A. In LA God, why can't I see it? In Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> um, they And they put out that single. I mean, there's still... To me, they were like they they like they invented speed metal <laughs> way back then. I mean, no, it was so insane to hear that. You know, most bands it, being fast was like, you know, and these guys were like, I don't know. 
so fast. Yeah, it's in, it's really fast. Yeah, yeah, I love it. They're yet to be top them and um, and the the uh, MDC, the earlier MDC. Yeah, it almost seems that like middle class skips that middle step. Like they came out before the adolescence, but they sound like they could have come after the adolescence, like because they're just so fast and hard. And yeah, they could have came out this. They could have came out this century, and I mean this. Uh, uh, yeah, century, millennial, whatever, and still been boom, you know. And then it's funny because then all of a sudden, as you played out here, they got really into Gang of Four, and then they did that second album, and it's more of a, it sounds more like Gang of Four, you know. They they like slowed it down, and they got kind of like jazz, jazzy, you know, type of thing. So it's it's just you know it's whatever the I think to me it's. That's the beauty of of having a band and having control of it is that you can say which way you want to go. I mean, look at Bad Religion. When they came out with Into the Unknown, it was like, what? <laughs> I thought they were kidding, you know? I thought they were, but, and they weren't, you know? But it was like, <laughs> we're, these guys have been smoking too much pot and listening to uh, Yes or whatever, you know? <laughs> totally. But you know... Uh, Pat Smear was a huge Yes fan as well, so it, maybe it was uh, not not too off the mark. Oh no, it's never it never is. I mean, what's funny is like fans of musics and stuff. They're usually very genre based, you know. They're very, you know, uh, faithful to their genre or whatever. They might like a little of something else, but most bands and band people, um, we usually like pretty much everything. I mean, we went to a party. Uh, when uh, Darby and uh, was living with Donneria, and this was like we went there with a couple of the guys from the Mechanics. It was '78, uh, I think, or something like that. And uh, we went to their apartment, and we we're just hanging out, you know, getting high, drinking, you know. And then they we start looking through their record collection, and they had like almost every Zeppelin album. They had like all this, you know, classic rock stuff, and they, you know, it was common. Yeah. It seems like there was there's a there was this um peer pressure within punk to sort of throw away the past and start over and 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 disavow anything that predates punk and it, and it's just like everyone kept those records. Everyone was a fan of shit that came before punk. Like quit lying to yourself, right? Exactly. Okay. It's like, don't be afraid. You know, they're, oh, then they will, they will feel like I'm a poser. <laughs> that P word poser. Cause yeah. punks don't listen to Liz Zeppelin. It's like, well, yeah, well you ever heard a song for communication breakdown? That's punk to me. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Rick, can you talk about leaving the adolescence and what does it feel like to walk away from like a project that you created something like so timeless? Like, you know, the blue album is like a classic, right? So how does it feel to like leave that? And then I guess just walk away from it, leave it behind. Uh, Leaving was never in the adolescence. Um, No, just let me get back. Let me get back on track. Um, Well, I basically didn't have a choice. I was uh, I was let go. I've been in the band four different times, and all four different times, 
for one reason or another, I was let go. And usually Casey was right behind me, you know, like yeah. whether it was a week later or, or, you know, four or five months later, he eventually would get the boot too. So. So whose band was it? Like who was the leader? If there was a leader. Huh. Well, the person that seemed like they had to be appeased and that, that kind of caught, called the shots, uh, you know, the veto or whatever you want to call it, it was Tony, uh-huh. you know, because and he could be really, de- de- uh, he could be really difficult. You know, he's a very stubborn man and he likes to get what he wants and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I still love the guy. I don't think he like loves me anymore. He hasn't loved me for a long time, but I wish he'd just, you know, just bury the hatchet, whatever it is that's up your ass, dude. Come on. Wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, so I just leave it alone. I don't, you know, I can't be bothered. Yeah, it seem, seems like he's had a hard life. I mean, he's. I've seen him speak in front of people before at, at Bergamont Station about his father was, uh, you know, a shell-shocked war veteran who, who would, would try to, you know, attack his family and they'd hide in the garage just horrible stories like that and it's like i can you can't imagine what that would do to someone at such a young age do you get the vibe like when you when you were in a band with him he was probably only like 16 when you joined the adolescence like what kind of a kid was he back then well he had four younger brothers and sisters who he had to basically take care of because um, forgive me, Tony, but I never met your dad, so I don't know. I, I never saw him from the time that we started rehearsing in the band, and because we used to rehearse all the time in in the Brandenburg garage, mm-hmm. you know, in Anaheim, there in his his house, you know, his where he lived, and um, and his mom was uh, an alcoholic; mm-hmm. she would just go bar hopping all the time. So it was just Tony and the kids, you know, left there. And I think that's what really kind of, you know, hit him hardest was the fact that, you know, here he is, like, you know, barely still in, you know, high school and he's got to watch four kids, you know, you know, it was just horrible. And, uh, yeah. And then, um, what kind of a guy was Steve? I only ever met him. I've been in the same room as him so many times and I feel really bad that I'd never had like a real conversation with him. Cause he seemed, he seems like he was a nice guy. So um, can you talk a little bit about Steve Soto? Yeah. God bless his rest of soul, man. God, that, that, that hurt. That hurt when it happened. It's still kind of makes me a little verklempt. <laughs> um, but a uh, wonderful guy, wonderful guy. We had so much fun. We, you know, on tours and everything and stuff, we just had, we just, you know, cracking up and everything. It was just, you know, beautiful. It was kind of like the opposite of being with Tony. <laughs> you know, he was always a good guy, always. But those, but Tony and Steve were sort of, they did they did they always get along? Because it seems like, they were like the two consistent members of the band. They, they got along because Tony 
God, Tony allowed it. See, if you if Tony decides that he doesn't like you, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you're fucked. You'll never ever be his friend. You'll never ever, you know. And Steve, you know, him and Frank basically started the band. So, uh, you know, there's that. And uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe they kept going because, you know, and stuck it out because it was making money. Mm-hmm. You know, oh. uh, but they both uh, had a lot of other side bands throughout the years, too. Right. And, 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 and um, very, very good side bands, I, I might, might add. Very pretty amazing stuff, you know. What not, neither of their other stuff was like adolescence. It was more just like, well, like the 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 Sand and Surf Club or Sand. It was a band that Tony had with some of the guys uh, from uh, the desert, you know, from that whole desert rock thing and stuff. And I thought that was his best work. And then he had Sister Sister Goddamn. He had uh, uh, the other band like that. I forgot what they were called. Uh, Oh, Flower Leopards. Abandoned. Abandoned. Yeah, Abandoned was kind of like after the whole adolescent things broke up for the rest of them. And so yeah. it's maybe foreign abandoned. So. So tell tell us about like so you tell us about joining Christian Death because you're not an original member of Christian Death, right? Christian Death was opening for adolescence in Pomona at a place called Pomona, Pomona Valley or Pomona Boxing Gym. It was like a big, you know, basketball. Uh, it was a sports gym kind of thing. And we saw the list of the bands that were going to play that night. It was Adolescence and, uh, uh, forgive me, but I can't remember the rest of the bands. But um, then it said Christian Death was the opening band. I'm all, that's a curious name. You know, I didn't picture them to be like they were. I just thought it was, you know, a hardcore band, punk band or whatever and stuff. And what's funny, too, is that Tony, another one of those Tonyisms, he um, told the Bad Religion that if they wanted to play the show, they could. But then they were saying, oh, but there's no room enough or time enough for, you know, for them to play. So to appease Tony and to be, you know, friends or whatever stuff we cut our set short and then bad religion played last and uh, that was like pretty much one of the first shows ever they uh it was cool i I still have a uh, they give everybody at their single they had just put out and they gave they didn't have any left so they gave me a a test pressing of one that i hold dear I don't care if it's worth five bucks or five thousand bucks. You know what I mean. Certain records you just you keep them. You don't want to let go of them. So anyway, uh, um, we go there and stuff, and we see these people there. And I'm all, oh, looks like it looks like they had a funeral somewhere. You know, local because it was like about 20, 25 kids all dressed like they're going to funeral. Wow! And then all of a sudden, this like. Uh, this droning music started playing over the PA and they start laying these lilies around the whole uh, perimeter of what was going to be the stage area. Cause all they had was like one little stage for, you know, the drums and that was it. So they did that and um, everything. And I go in the restroom and, and then I see Roz 
there and I'm like, curious looking fella. <laughs> he must be in that Christian death band. So um um we just all of a sudden just look at each other and stuff and just I just smile, nod, he just smiles and nod and walks out and then they play they played like about four songs, five songs. And it was so like rad and dark. And the guitar player he just kind of played chords like you would like in Black Sabbath or something, following the bass. And for the first song, he didn't even play because he didn't know what to do there. And it was just, uh, it was that song, Burnt Offerings, but back then it was called Marie. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it was real, real interesting. Go, wow, man, this is, this is really, really cool. And the music's dark and everything and stuff, but they need somebody to, like in my head, I kept hearing like Susan Banshee's pill kind of guitar on top of it thinking that would make it complete. And so when the show was over, uh, George and, and uh, James came out and they started talking to me. And at this point, I, I had already known that this was going to be my last adolescent show. They had already told, they gave me my walking papers, but I wanted to finish out, you know, what I, what I needed to do. And so they go, okay, well, hey, listen, you know, if you want to join another band or whatever and stuff, we're, we'd love to have you on guitar. And I go, really? Okay. Well, we exchanged numbers and boom. And then I got together with those two guys and and um, we went through a few of the riffs and songs that they had and did a lot of acid then <laughs> and just kind of like let the fingers do the walking, if you know what I mean. It was... Uh, um, and that was really cool. So yeah, I could blame LSD for those songs. Huh. Thank. <laughs> yeah, Rick, you joined the band, but then don't you end up writing the majority of only a theater of pain? Um, not the majority, you know, just parts of it, big parts of it. Um, I don't whatever it says on the record, you know. What okay, I mean? fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it just it I wrote so many songs and put out so many things that, that it is getting to the point where I gotta look at the you know the uh the documents and, and stuff to remember. Well, Romeo's distress is pure Rick Agnew. I'm gonna go out on a limb and guess and say that make that assumption. Romeo's distress was actually going to be an adolescent song. Sounds like it. Yes, thank you. But it was just the music. I just had the music then. You know, and then they I didn't use the uh sound or anything. It was just basically it was just the, you know, the chords and stuff in the octaves. Mm-hmm. And didn't have a complete, you know, uh finished uh um, construction of it or anything and no lyrics of course and but um that, that was one thing too like when i joined you know christianity it was like well of course Roz is going to write all the words because you know he's he's like the the figurehead i mean you know and then i've seen some of his lyrics i'm like oh oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> but um he would hardly ever ever come to a rehearsal uh, we would just make tapes, and when we saw him, we'd give him the tapes. But when we did rehearse together, sometimes um, he would he he didn't have a PA or anything. What he would do is just sit on a, on a uh, bench and uh, like a barstool, and he would uh, have this lyrics uh, 
a book with lyrics in it, you know, and poems. Mm-hmm. And then he would just like light a cigarette, you know, and pull his hair back and just be puffing his cigarette and, and just be reading the words as we played the music. And I I like, well, is he ever, you know, when we do our show, is he ever going to rehearse with us first beforehand? Then they go, don't worry about it, you know, and stuff. And sure enough, you know, he had it right down. So. Wow. Yeah, Rick, you talked about them playing that show with the adolescents, but what type of shows would Christian death normally play? And was it like separate from the punk or hardcore lane? Not necessarily. Um, did a show uh, later on with uh, Angelic Upstart. <laughs> See, that's another thing. In the earlier, earlier days of punk, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, between late 70s and then 80, 81, 82. And there, I mean, there was no genre, you know. It was, it was, it got, it got weird when it was like, well, we can't play with that band because they don't, they don't sound like our kind of music. It's like, well, don't you know? Haven't you ever been to fucking Lollapalooza? Haven't you ever been to? You know, it's like, it's, it's all about you know having different bands that way. You know, people could go to a show and get the you know various experiences. You know, and widen their love for music, but. When the, some of these bands would be like, well, they're not hardcore, so we can't play the hardcore because we're hardcore. But it's like, yawn, how boring, you know, five or six sounds, some bands that sound the same at a show. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? Totally. Yeah, it seems like yeah. that started to happen more later on when any sort of sound, any sort of sound you can think of, there are a dozen bands that play that style so that you can have bills where every band kind of sounds the same. But yeah. early, you know. Um, so tell us about All By Myself because I love that album and I just want to know how you made it because aside from like those early Prince records where he literally played every instrument and produced the whole thing himself... I can't think of any any other record where it's just literally one person doing everything. So t- walk us through that process. How like the order in which you laid down the instruments? Um, well, it was with um, with um, fr- uh, Frontier again. It was recorded at Perspective Sound, the same place where um, that we recorded uh, uh, Adolescents and uh, other bands recorded there too. Uh, TSOL uh, Dance With Me was recorded there. And um, so I, I recorded there with Tom Wilson. And what happened was to get it for the cheapest or most inexpensive, I guess you want to say, I was working a full-time job at the time on, uh, in, in Santa Ana. And that, that perspective sounds in Sun Valley. So it's, it's quite, a, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a drive. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so what happened was we started on uh, Friday for, uh, after work. I got off work at like 4, 4.30. And I would just jump in the car, go flying down to the studio, get down there and um, and record. And then um, then I'd have to leave in time to get back to my job. And I had to do this for like two days. The third day, uh, it was a weekend, so I didn't have to worry. And uh, 
but it was by the time the third day came and we were like you know mixing and stuff i literally fell asleep on the board on the mixing board yeah i was out of it but did you um, lay down the drums first and then get drum, baked and then Yeah, I was going to get to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, drums first, all the drums, and then all the bass, and then all the rhythm guitars, and then uh, keyboards, uh, the octaves and lead guitars, and then the vocals. Right. Wow. And yeah. the, the whole thing, when you listen to the whole thing, I... And that's another thing too when I record, especially with solo stuff like that and everything. I don't like to do any more. If I can't na- nail it in three takes, then we're done. We're not going to do that, you know, maybe tomorrow or whatever. But I usually got it all within three takes. And how did you write the stuff? Did you like multi track at home to figure out what all these parts would sound like over each other? Um, what I would do is the same thing that I did with uh, Kids of Black Hole when I wrote it and everything. I was living in um, Stanton in an apartment with my girlfriend at the time, Karen. And um, not Karen. Her name is Karen Okura. She was like a, a Japanese model girl. And uh, I would just sit there and I'd make me a big bowl of, uh, of uh, what was it? kamikazes. <laughs> at the time i was very much into kamikaze it's a huge bowl ice cubes you know the the green stuff and vodka and i'd sit there and take shots and stuff and i had like a ghetto blaster sitting there and i'd record what the main riff the basic riff you know of of, of each song like i did with kiss the black hole and then i would you know write the other part uh and then put it, you know, play it along with what I recorded on the Ghetto Blaster. And the rest of us just like in my head, you know, I could do that. I can write an entire song. Uh, every, every, I could hear everything in my head. And like, like, it's like I'm in a studio. I don't know. I got a studio in my head. <laughs> right. What, so that's, huh? Would you, when, when uh, that record came out in 82, were you able to play sh- play those songs live in any context at all? Like, were, were people able to go see Rick Agnew doing those songs? Oh, yeah. I, rec- I recruited, I would recruit, uh, you know, some musicians. It, it changed every time. But it was usually like um, one of my brothers. Um, and then the drummer was uh, a guy that, uh, the drummer was... Uh, a guy named Eddie Acevedo who got shot and killed at a at a gang party or something in Anaheim a long time ago. Uh, the bass player was a guy named Al Cornelius, amazing bass player. We were in a band later that was really trippy called Territory. And uh, then there was, uh, like I said, one of the guitar players was either Alfie or... Uh, also, uh, Rick Hirschbein, who was in Abandoned, right? Uh, the guitar player and stuff. His his nickname was. Uh, <laughs> I know PC people could go nuts over things, but back then there was no real PC. You know what I mean? So we called him Jew Boy because he was Jewish. Uh huh. <laughs> I got <laughs> that, that a lot good. too. I got a yeah. lot. I got that a lot. Tw- Twenty years later, so really no excuse. <laughs> Jesus. 
Rick, but, what, uh, was, what, what was the reception like when you played those shows and those solo songs? Um, same as it was for like any other band or any other bands and things. You know what I mean? People, they didn't really go crazy back then unless you were, you know, I don't know. It, it was almost like it, you weren't, people were too punk to really go, you know, gaga and be like, you know, Woo, you know, and stuff. So most of the time they'd just be beating each other up or, you know, watching or, you know, drinking beers, throwing shit at you, you know, but it wasn't throwing shit being mean. It was just, it was punk rock. Yeah. yeah I, I read before about the kamikaze thing and your affinity for them. Why do you prefer the kamikaze to a margarita? Cause I believe it's just the same, but vodka instead of tequila, right? Um, well, it's just, I don't know. I liked them. They tasted <laughs> cool, you know, they tasted good and they were in a bowl like that. And I just used a shot glass and kunk, kunk. You know, I just, I fell in love with them. <laughs> Fair enough. But so, that wasn't, that wasn't that long, you know, I always changed it. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask you about this really obscure band and you played on their record. I don't know if you were a full-time member but the band dare stab oh der stab der stab what what who's der stab what is that der stab was a band that was from orange county there and stuff and um keith was a singer uh uh oh, what's his first name phillips he was the drummer and then they had um joe wood on guitar and they had this guy named Perry on bass. And um, they, they, you know, they played a few shows out in Orange County and this and a couple other places. And uh, then they wanted to record a single where, where uh, Keith did, the singer, Keith Walsh. And, but he said that the other guys, I guess, he couldn't reach them or whatever the reason was. So... Uh, uh, it was just Randy and 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 Keith, and uh, he had me play. Uh, did I play guitar or bass? I played either guitar or bass, and my brother Frank played either guitar or bass, and uh, that's how that came to be. And and they didn't last very long. And, you know, what's funny is when you think back, it could, you know, it could have been like three months and maybe even six months max, but that was like an eternity back then for bands for some reason. Right. You know? And, uh, yeah, that, so that was towards the end of when they were together. It was just the two of them, Randy Phillips and, and Keith Walsh. Rick, the adolescents get back together in 86 and you play some of those huge Fenders ballroom shows. What are some of your memories on playing Fenders? Oh, I loved Fenders. It was fun. There was it just packed out. I mean, it was like that first reunion show we did. It was crazy. You know, we made we made I mean, we made like we never usually made, you know, like more than a thousand at the most with other bands. You know, so the adolescents, I think the most we made was 800 once, you know, back, back in the day and stuff. But um, Tony made sure to sabotage us to where we couldn't, that's another thing Tony did too. He thought it was punk to sabotage to where we couldn't, to where we were completely blackballed 
by any clubs in LA. Now, smart one, I mean, smart one, Tony, you know, he always did these things just to be punk because he thought it was the punkiest thing to do. And it, it, but he was shattering our careers. And, you know, the rest of us are like, Dude, come on, we, you know, we want to do this for the rest of our lives. We, we want to tour. We want to put out records. Why are you doing this? Can you give an example of something? How did he sabotage it? Well, you know, we would play a show somewhere and he would just, you know, I don't know. He would just, uh, he would, I don't know. He'd piss off the fucking clubs to where they didn't want us back anymore, you know, and he'd bad mouth. He would, you know, just be a persona non gratis, basically. Yeah. So that's about it, you know, is, um, and then what else? What else would you like to have? Well, just the, um, just talking about Fenders a little bit. Like you play with some okay. no, no, some notable bands of the era. Like you know, you play with like Uniform Choice. What is your thought of them? Because this is like a newer band coming up and like a completely different style. Like, what's your thought on like this new scene? Uniform Choice is what you can that see. That's what we considered hardcore bands right. like that were hardcore. Um. I I thought they were they were they were just nutty. They were crazy, you know. And then, but nice guys, really nice guys. But man, they were just you know they got their people to just really go crazy and wild wild it up. And then seven seconds was like that back then too. Offenders were everybody be jumping up on stage and stuff, and they'd make what I would call these domes, human domes. They went about trying to sing in the microphones and stuff, and they'd be crawling all over each other. You couldn't even see the, the players anymore. <laughs> right. Singing along was a big deal, huh? Yeah. And finally, uh, Kevin Seconds, he was just like, you know, after a while, he's just like, will you get the fuck off the stage? We can't even play. We can't even sing. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing, you know? It just got too much. We also played with uh, Cro-Mags there. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, was that? No, no, that was DI. Well, regardless, what was that like? That was was very, very interesting. That was very cool. You know, they were interesting people and stuff. Bad Brains. Mm -hmm. Played with the Bad Brains. You know, a lot of we did like part of a tour with them. We played with them there. And, um, to me, they're one of the best bands ever, period, punk or otherwise, you know. And I mean, when you listen to recordings and you, you know, you hear them and you're just like, damn, you know, yeah, good luck trying to repeat that on, on stage. And sure enough, man, when we played with them at the Metro in Chicago, those guys were getting stoned the entire time and they were getting us stoned. And by the time we went on, the adolescent one, we could barely play. We were just like, oh, you know, we did okay, but we were so stoned, we couldn't even think straight. And those guys are on the side of the stage, you know, just kind of looking at it, kind of cracking up. And um, they just kept smoking, smoking. And then when they got up there, they just shredded. They were perfect. We're it's just not fair. Like, it's just not fair. That's what I was going to say. I was going to be like, that's not fair. I got to learn to do that. <laughs> Everyone says the same thing about the bad. Anyone who saw the bad brains in that in the eighties says, like they don't even have to think. They're just like that was that's the best band ever. Like bar none, 
end of discussion. Like, and it just makes me like think like, thanks. I was five. Like, <laughs> I'll never get to see that. <laughs> cool. Rub it no, in. Not like it was. You'll never get to see it like it was because unfortunately, you know, HR, you know, had some issues and stuff and it, it just, you know, he just kind of melted, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, it was sad because we love those guys, especially HR. Every time you'd see me, like when we toured and stuff, and then when um when uh, we played with them in the at Fenders, like about a year or two later, I walk up to him on 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 the street and I go, and I'm all HR. He's all, he, he, every time you see me, little brother, <laughs> little brother, give me a big old hug and everything and stuff. And then I introduced him to my girlfriend, Linda Taylor, at the time. And um, he looks at her and just big old smile and grabs her arms and just like it spin in the circles, you know. <laughs> it's really right. crack, crack of. But, Rick, um, one last question on Fenders before we move on. Just uh, can you juxtapose the scene at Fenders in like the 86 era versus <laughs> like the early 80s? Like, how much has the scene changed? Is it bigger? Is it more violent, et cetera? Uh, no, it just it was just as big as it ever was, and it wasn't any more violent or anything. I mean, uh, a few violent things that happened at Fenders had nothing to do with the bands or the, the, the fans or anybody like that. What happened was um, this one time, uh, these three gangster guys were walking down towards the front of it and stuff and, and all of a sudden this car came by and there was a lot of people in front you know in line to get in and this car comes by and then it starts like you know firing guns out of there and those and those three guys that were walking along they had rifles and stuff and everything and and they got behind cars and i mean it was just like it's total you know battle and it was like fucking scary it's like oh shit <laughs> but that was about it that i can remember I don't remember any death or, you know, between the kids and the bands and, and, you know, maybe just your typical fight now and then stuff, but nothing major, you know, they were just having too much of a good time that I remember. Were you and your bands always able to like kind of avoid the gang thing that happened in the eighties? Um, well, what happened was, I mean, we played a lot of shows in the mid eighties and stuff, which is when all the gang shit was happening. And it got, you know, to a point where it's like, God dang it, man. You know, it's just like, what's with all this gang shit and there's neo-Nazi gangs and, and these like, you know, these other gangs, you know, street gangs. And just, it was like, what happened to punk? Punk was where I used to go to get away from fucking idiots and, and, you know, and feel safe. It was like my, my safe, you know, American home, basically. And now all these people are coming and just ruining it. Now they're making it just so dangerous. I almost got to a point where I was going to literally buy a gun and keep it with me when we played. And if I saw anything like that happening stuff, I was just going to like, you know, start shooting above their heads, you know, or into the, into the ceiling and get them to shut up and go, next time it's on you, you know, or something. I forgot what it was, but... I, I never did. I never bought the gun or anything, but it, I got mad until I almost wanted to. So, 
Yeah, there was a shooting at an adolescence show way later at at the House of Blues. I don't I don't know if you were in the band when that. Oh happened. yes, I was. Yes, okay, I explain, was. Tell tell that story. I totally forgot about that, and you made me rem- remember. Well, there was these two, like you know, not skinheads from um, from South County, and they came in there, and then um, we were um, backstage, me and, and my girlfriend at the time, and my mom, and um, also. Uh, uh, Clinton from DI. And he back then he was he would get so drunk, you know, and that he, he could barely see straight. So we're sitting back there and I'm trying to get away from people and everything. And uh, you know, it was just us and those guys come in there, the two skinny guys, and one of them is just like, hey man, you know you go, and he grabs her and stuff, so starts dancing with her, and he said, Hey dude, look, look, look what I'm doing with your girlfriend, huh? Look what I'm doing, you know, and stuff. And I looked at her and she looked at me and she knew what I wanted to do. I had a bottle of beer in my hand. I was going to smash him over the head. And she just goes, no, no, just said, don't do it. And she, she basically took care of it. You know, she just, you know, let him do a thing or whatever and stuff. But um, I was keeping an eye on my mom because if anyone even started to mess with my mom, then yeah, they would have been slaughtered. But uh God bless her soul. I have, I both, I lost both my parents in the last, you know, six months or so. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it happens, you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, she was 91. My dad was 88. So, hey, you know, pretty long, fruitful lives, whatever. Yeah. The, the, like you said, there's going to be a movie out called Agnew, the story of a, a Southern California family or um. And that's going to be amazing. It's going to tell the whole story from beginning to end of everything. And it, it'll be good. Um, so let's see. And then that happened, you know, and finally they, they just kind of got bored, I guess, and left the room. But then they went into TSOL's room, which was the big, you know, backstage room. And that's where they had the, the food for every, you know, for the bands. And so, uh, went there and got some food and was going to talk to Jack and stuff. And they had a friend of theirs there. I forgot his name. And even if I remembered, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, but he was a friend of the, you know, those guys of the TSOL. And uh, he, he was a gangster. I don't know if he was a blotter crip, but he's this black guy and, but he was cool. He liked punk and he liked those guys. So he's there and he's getting food from the, you know, from the deli thing there. And those two those two assholes came in there and start helping themselves. It was like, you know, like, and they look at them, they go, hey, what are you doing in here, Nick? You know, like that. You don't belong in here, Nick, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, I'm looking going like, and he 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 just kept calm and you know, kept getting his food, but he's looking at them and he's looking over at me and he's just got, I was just went like, oh man, I feel bad for these guys if they only knew, you know? Right. <laughs> and um, so later on, uh, he who would not be um, named, because I don't know his name and whatever and stuff, he, uh, when after they did that and everything and stuff, and then they got on stage while uh, TSO was playing, and they were on the side of the stage, and they're just making a ruckus, you know, and stuff, and just being assholes still. So, uh, um, 
he who cannot be named, <laughs> not the one from the dwarves, the one I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ran up there and he uh, and he uh, shot at these guys in front, of, in front of a packed crowd, a packed audience. Yeah, but nobody really saw it because he did it from like the you know from the back there, like right when you walk go to walk on stage there's like you know stuff in the way and the wall and everything and stuff so um but yeah it just it was like you know you're not gonna get away with this and um he shot the one guy in the neck and the guy grabs his neck and looks at his hand and just like almost passed out you know and stuff and then the one guy got uh, the other guy that was being the real smart ass that was dancing with my girl and stuff like that he got shot at once in the leg and he just started crying like a little bitch. It was it was almost worth it to see it. You know what I mean? Wow. Because he's like, oh, I got you. I got you. I'm suing. I'm suing. And look at, I go by him and I just go like, really? You know? <laughs> like, you know, you got to shake your head on that, you know? And so, and it sucked because we had a show the next night, you know, where we were headlining and TSO were going to play behind us. And um, it got canceled, you know, and the place was closed up. Couldn't even get home till the morning because they made everybody stay in because, you know, the cops were coming down and they were searching everybody and, you know, seeing what's going on. It was it was a fracas. So that guy got away. The the, the shooter got actually got out of the building. Not, not only did he got out of the building, but he ended up turning around and they they sued. They sued the place. I mean, it's, it's not even there anymore. They sued the 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 house, the house of blues, and and they uh, what do you call it? They sued the guys in TSOL, and they had to fucking you know pay. I forgot what it was like some exuberant amount of money. Can, can you believe that? And these are total two ran, total strangers who do, never met anyone in TSOL before. The the guys who got shot. I don't know if they ever met them or whatever stuff, but they were just, you know, they they were obviously there just to start trouble. Right. You know, they, that's when that whole skinhead thing was happening and stuff. So not skinheads, good skinheads. I love the traditional skinheads. I love, I have a lot of skinhead friends, but the neo-Nazi ones, you know, those fucking, those guys, come on, you know. I don't like anybody who's going to be violent towards anybody. Or that is does violent things towards. I don't care what you believe in, what you stand stand for, or anything. But the second you uh, offend somebody or cost somebody for no good reason, you you need to be killed. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. that's pretty harsh. But I it don't is. feel bad. I don't feel bad at all for a neo Nazi getting whatever's coming to them. So tell us about about your. Uh, current bands or what what's happened since uh you know the era we're talking about you know post adolescence post di post christian death of the bands that you've been involved with you mentioned poop and then you also have um the rick agnew band yeah we're just still together you know we just haven't played for a while together and stuff we released an album called learn on frontier uh in 2014 I recommend it. It's really, really good. If you like the adolescence and you like my solo stuff, it's it's like that plus. You know, I, I'm proud of it. Put it that way. I'm very proud of that album. Um, God, you know what, man? I, 
I don't know where to start. And we could be here all night and the next mm-hmm. morning. And I really, I, I got to get going pretty quick here. Because uh, it's I'm all, it's, so. it's totally fine. Thanks so much for your, for your time, Rick. And, and is there welcome. a website or anything that someone could go to, to, to find all that stuff? Um, Jesus. Uh, I well, guess my, my Facebook pages, I got a lot of Facebook pages, fan pages. You know, if you go to my main uh, Rick Agnew uh, uh, Facebook page, you can find a lot of my other bands and uh, ta- attachments and stuff. We have, okay, real quick, I'll mention though that currently it's, there is a, the Jaton Damone Quartet. You know, I'm, I'm married to, uh, to Jaton Damone, you know, who she is, right? I know. She's, uh, yep. She was, she was the, uh, she was in Christian Death after, you know, we all had left it. And, Roz got that band Pompeii 99 and made them his band. And then she also did a solo career for quite a while in Europe and everything. And uh, she's amazing. She's doing a lot of stuff now. She's she's written uh, and recorded an opera, written and recorded uh, like greatest hit stuff and also a uh, uh, just all kinds of different projects. It's amazing. Jaton Damone. Cool. Yeah, and, and then we have the quartet, which is her on vocals, myself on guitar, uh, Deb Venom, a uh, keyboard player, and then um, Paul Rosler. <laughs> his, his name comes back. <laughs> Paul wow. Rosler, all the keyboards, too, and stuff. And that's amazing, Dan. It's a, I can't even describe what it, the band itself, um, the music or whatever stuff, the genre. We are our own genre. But let me tell you, it's amazing. It's great it's damn good i don't mean to brag but i'm i'm serious and um a lot of them we have like uh we're working on a third album right now uh we have two that are out and uh we have a couple video videos and stuff so gdq jaton damon quartet either of those will work awesome um, yeah so that's yeah, well, very that's, cool we'll get we'll get it all hooked up uh we'll talk to you through email after this and we make a playlist for every podcast, so we'll get all hooked um, up in there, and everyone can check out the playlist. Okay, and and also another band that we got together still and stuff, and, and we were just about to break out big, you know, when all this COVID stuff happened. In fact, we were going to be a support band for uh, Body Count because we get a lot of backing from from uh, Vincent, who's from Body Count. He, you know, he, he's 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 a gem. He's amazing. Um, Body count so, the iced tea band. Oh yeah, I love iced tea. Oh yeah, I love iced tea. I love body count. They're amazing stuff. The bass player, body count is just insane. He's great. The whole band's great. But you know, you'll see. He he, he named him Vincent Price because <laughs> um. Oh, well, I, huh? I met I met you in on the balcony of the Hollywood Palladium in 1992, and I also met Ice T on the balcony of this the same balcony of the Hollywood Palladium also in 1992 because body count opened for the Ramones because um, the house of pain got booed off stage two nights in a row. So the third night they called, they called body count for emergency relief. I so, remember, I remember that. Yeah. You remember that. Was poor, the poor guys, man. I was, yeah. I, I was getting really, I almost start crying. I felt so bad for them. I'm going to tell them that I can give them a chance. Come on. You know, yeah. knock it off. Well, you know? thanks so much for, for talking, Rick. Um, 
the last okay, question me, we ask me, everybody. Yeah, let me finish with uh, symbolism. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. Made up, uh, it's made up of uh, James from the uh, original Christian Death on Bass, myself on guitar, a guy named Devix Zell, S-Z-E-L-L, on vocals, who's an amazing singer. He's got an original style, original like st- uh, st- stage quality and everything. He's amazing. And then the drummer is London May, who was... Oh, yeah, in, I know uh, London. Yeah, he's the drummer. So cool. we only got to do two shows, I think it was. One was for the uh, Dam show, because uh, Schechter sponsors us, Schechter Guitars. Yep. And then the first one was for uh, to to play uh, this party at the Zebulon, and it was for uh, London's movie had that brutal realty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah everybody you can find it on like you know YouTube. The they're gonna expand it and stuff, but the one that's on now, <laughs> it's great. He's mm-hmm. a, he's quite an actor, and so is a uh, Devix, the singer. They're both uh, extremely amazing actors. They've done work. They're both members of SAG-AFTRA, of course. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rick, for taking Thank the you. time out to talk to us. We're, we, we're huge fans, and you, and you often come up on the podcast naturally when we're just talking about music in general. And um, our, the last question we always ask our guests uh, is do you feel well represented in this I interview? Know. I don't. I don't. Uh, oh, it, it, in the interview, do I feel represented? Well represented. Yeah, yeah sure. Like everything I, I could basically get out, but like I said, you know, it's like, you know what? I got to start working my book, and I was saying there's so much that I might have to do it in chapters, like a Hardy Boys mystery, you know, <laughs> but I will eventually i will i will definitely buy that book when it comes out and i also paint do artwork and i'm sponsored by destroy art inc so uh if you go to their uh their their uh their uh website and everything you can find a lot of my artwork there and stuff and because i'm very much into painting i've been doing a lot of painting so rick agnew renaissance man Yes. Love it. <laughs> with a, Love it. With a, with a Renaissance woman, Jatan. Yeah, she's, she's Cool. <laughs> well, thanks again, Rick. Thank you. And uh, yeah. look, I, I want to get that, that uh, amp, uh, guitar, that, that album to you. <laughs> of course. Thanks so much. Looking you forward to it. it.